Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Levy about his book, Starting from Scratch, One Classroom Builds Its Own Curriculum. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trevor. It's a delight to speak with you. Uh, I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. I think when I got into education back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, it was a time when we had lost faith in our government. we would kind of lost faith in our religious institutions, and it felt like the only way forward for our country, for our civilization, was to educate a new generation of people who knew how to think, who knew how to be compassionate, who saw a service as the goal of um, how to use the gifts that they were given rather than for their own advancement. So um, so I began um, thinking about and eventually moving into becoming a teacher. I taught for 28 years in several different settings and um, and then had an opportunity to begin to share some of the things that I had learned in my classroom with other teachers. So I began to do some consulting. I taught for half-time uh, for five years, and, and that was probably my favorite uh, job was sharing a fourth-grade class with another teacher, and uh, we did three-day alternating stints. And uh, the opportunity to go out and visit other schools, learn from what they were doing, and then bring things that I was learning back into my classroom and, and to be attentive in my classroom to things that happened that I would want to go out and share it was really a favorite part of my teaching career. And then I left the classroom uh, after 28 years of teaching and had been working for um, EL Education, which was expeditionary learning in the beginning, and um, as a consultant, working as a school designer, um, helping schools get better through working with teachers designing curriculum and instructional practices and assessments and culture building. And I have a lovely wife who we just celebrated um, last year, our 41st wedding anniversary. So um, we're paving the way for you. We're drafting for you. Um, and, uh, and I have four children who are all grown up and doing interesting things. It's, it's interesting to me that you mentioned uh, the time in which you began your teaching career is, is that period following the late 60s, early 70s when uh, there was not a lot of faith in our institutions. And it, is, it seems sort of analogous to me to um, the last 10 or 15 years in the United States today, where people are a bit disillusioned with uh, American domestic or foreign policy or the state of the economy. I'm wondering if you see any parallels between uh, teaching today and uh, teaching when, when you got into it. Right. Well, we elected Nixon back then, and, and you all elected Trump. So um, both kind of extreme reactions to um, what felt like may have been chaotic uh, in our society. Um, I think there is definitely a parallel. I think as I see things happening in the streets, as I see people whose, um, whose power feels to have been entirely taken away, whose economic status seems to have eroded, and, and then how do people react in times of difficulty like that? I think that's really the test of a society, and one of the things that's helped us, I think, or encouraged us or inspired us to buckle down even more in the importance of our work in education today is, is kind of seeing the alternative ways that people react when 
they feel a loss of control over their lives and uh, and how subject they can become if they're not critical thinkers, if they're not compassionate citizens, um, if they don't have the character uh, to uh, to really live together in a democracy, we, we see the sort of devastating results of such such a society. So again, I'm hoping that the conditions of today will be encouraging to teachers in the classroom about how much work, uh, how important the work is that they're doing, and also uh, encourage other people to come into this profession, uh, again, with the hope of training a new generation. But I guess this is the generation we trained back then, so it may just be an ongoing cycle that we'll, um, we, we will not escape from. Whenever we have teachers on the show, I'm always interested in asking them uh, not only how they came to work as a teacher, but which of their experiences, either as a student or during their career, sort of most shaped their views on what the purpose of public schools is? Um. I went to public schools all my life, um, from kindergarten through 12th grade. I don't remember having been excited by anything uh, that I learned in the classroom as much as I was by the thrills of the basketball court or the baseball field. Um, I, it wasn't until I, I think I got to college that I, I, I felt like I met teachers who um, opened up something in me and saw something in me that I maybe hadn't seen um, and who approached a subject with such passion and engagement that, that drew the same out of me. Um, my, my original interest in education actually came from um, an opportunity to make some money. I, I, I went into it for the money, which is unusual, but I'd been working uh, in the uh, warehouses along the Mississippi River in St. Louis, Missouri during the summers, and I just thought one summer, if I could just get five kids together, and I'll just pick them up in my van, and we, I don't even need a place, I'll just pick them up and we'll just go have adventures. And uh, one day we'd go to the art museum, one day we'd go to the zoo, one day we'd go fishing, one day we'd go for a hike in the woods, and we'd just go out and have adventures. And somehow I was able to talk a few families into this, and I got five kids and charged them $50 a week, I think, at the time, but I was making more than I was making in the warehouse. And um, and I think it was being with those kids. They were all around nine, ten years old. And uh, one incident in particular, when we went to an art museum on a Monday, and we got there, and I was uh, dismayed to find that the museum was actually closed on Monday. And so I thought, oh, no, my whole plan, what are we going to do? And, and within minutes, these kids were out on the uh, yard in front of the museum, having invented games to play with chestnuts that had fallen on the ground, and were just having the best time. And just the kind of energy that I saw in those kids felt like, I want to be around that. I want to be around mm -hmm. people who can take any moment, whatever it is or whatever it brings, and sort of find joy in it and find ways of, 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 of new opportunities. I think it was that one morning at the closed museum that I said, I think I'd like to be a teacher. Do you feel like uh, you were able to experience that, that joy and that imagination uh, working in public schools in the way that you did uh, as sort of a summer camp director or in your interactions with uh, children, you know, in your personal life? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I did. Um, 
my first teaching job was actually um, in a Waldorf school. And, and I felt like that was a place that demanded um, uh, deep thinking and lots of creativity and imagination, lots of integration of the arts, lots of going deeply into subjects in a project kind of way. So um, the opportunity to work in that school, I felt like I really was. And I was also with uh, uh, colleagues who were striving for the same excellence and beauty and depth of, of, of work and attentive to the whole child. And, um, so I think that was a, a, a wonderful introduction to the world of education for me. Um, then when I, I left Waldorf and went to the public school in Lexington, Massachusetts, and uh, it was a different climate there. Um, I, uh, I learned two things. One, things that I thought just belonged to Waldorf, because that was all I had studied, like integration of the arts and, and, and project-based learning and uh, teaching to the whole child, um, that I thought were, 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 pro, uh, were, were sort of that's what Waldorf was. I began to see that, well, there's good teachers everywhere that are doing that kind of work. Um, and so one, as I was encouraged to find there were a lot of great teachers in this school that I worked in and in other schools that I met. Um, and it was also a very different climate. There wasn't the kind of camaraderie. There wasn't the collective spirit. There wasn't a collective mission. So uh, people were generally friendly toward one another, but not really collaborative. And uh, so I was very quietly about sort of expressing my passions and energies in my classrooms, but, but very humbly. I mean, I knew I had a lot to learn. Um, I would spend my periods of uh, my, my planning periods visiting other teachers just to learn how um, Mrs. Green taught mystery novels and how Mrs. Boyd taught um, cooperative learning. And um, so, so my attitude was one that just I have something to learn from everybody. Um, and then I gradually began to get more complex in the work and projects that I was doing um, and, um, and eventually even got a few other teachers to, to meet together, to be thinking about how we could make our curriculum more enlivening and effective and engaging for our kids. Um, but it was difficult in a, in a, in a school that wasn't, uh, aligned uh, all together towards the same vision or the same goal. So my, my work in schools with uh, EL education has been quite different in, in that um, those are all schools that in some way have committed to the kind of values and principles uh, and goals that we have as an organization, which include mastery of content and skills, but equally important is development of character and uh, high engagement and of, um, of the ability to take what skills and, and content we've learned and to make something beautiful out of it, to, to make a product that feels like it serves a real audience, that, uh, that gives meaning and relevance to the work that kids do. So I'm curious um, how you came to write your book starting from scratch. Yeah. Well, I, I really had no intention of writing a book. Um, but one year, uh, probably the most adventurous year of my teaching, um, we began in the fourth grade. I had um, um, these are kids from Lexington, so we're a fairly well-off suburb, um, although they would call themselves not a suburb because of its own rich history. But um, outside of Boston, and um, 
And so our, educa- our, our population was educated and, and knew the value of education, and kids tended to feel a bit entitled and privileged. So, so my favorite thing to do with those kids was take stuff away from them. Um, and that's kind of um, so. So the um, so I would always do projects where um, we would like we grew wheat in order to find out where a loaf of bread comes from. I, I'd give them a raw fleece of wool. They would have to um, figure out how it became an article of cloth. One of the things we part of our curriculum, the heart of it in social studies, was colonial life. And I just thought. Kids can never have any historical imagination of what life would be like long ago when you couldn't just go to the store and get what you wanted. But, you know, uh, what you had to, all the things that you had to do uh, in order to get something that you wanted. So this was my favorite project. wrote them a letter over the summer invited them to come to class the first day with a map of what they thought the ideal classroom should look like. And um, so they came with their little maps, and um, uh, I had cleared everything out, so there was nothing in the room at all. And the challenge of the year was going to be to to start with their maps and and, uh, design, find a way to fund, and then build their classroom. And then my challenge was going to be, okay, how do I get to simple machines, colonial life, um, rocks and minerals, all the different subjects of uh, reading, of course, and math, uh, my curriculum through that adventure. And um, so so one of the great features that came out was in order to fund it, we, we always would, in order to, whenever we would come to a problem, we would uh, go back to the pilgrims and see, did they have that problem? And if they did, how did they meet it? And um, so, so the first one was they wanted to build their desks, and so how are you going to get money? And they found out, well, the pilgrims got local business, basically, to invest, uh, the London Company and the East India Company. And so that was our model. So kids got uh, – so they wrote letters to all the businesses in town to see if they wanted to buy a share. And I, I give you that background just because here's where the idea of the book began. So they um, – so the so so we had 44 people buy shares and businesses. We had banks buy shares and an accountant and a carpenter and a hardware store and an ice cream store and a Chinese restaurant. So it was a, a, a terrific involvement of the community. Um, but then they got dividends. So so a lot of the products that kids made when we uh, when we uh, made bread from the wheat we grew, they would get a loaf of bread. When we sewed something. Uh, from the wool project, they would get something that we had knit or woven for them. Um, and one of the dividends they got was a video. And we had a parent who um, who had some experience in videography who had just taken video of the class uh, through the entire year. So there was this terrific video that um, you don't often get to see the sort of unfolding of a project over the whole year. And kids sort of tell the story and narrate all the things that they did. So, um, so, so it, it originally, um, so we showed that video and gave it to all the shareholders. Um, and it was not edited. It was sort of 90 minutes, way too long. But there were some teachers there who said, this is an amazing project. You have to really work on this and make that available for other teachers to see. So actually did have it more professionally edited and cut down 
and and I was interested in making that video available. So I contacted uh, Heinemann and said, "Hey, I've got this video," um, and and I think I I wrote up just one description of the story of um, of the project of of this year starting from scratch, and. Um, and they wrote back and said, well, we don't really do videos, but um, do you have other stories like this? Because we would love to publish a book that, uh, if you've got other stories. And I said, well, yeah, I have lots of stories. And um, so that was the origin of the book. Uh, I was sort of disappointed that they weren't going to be able to, to, to market my video. But um, then I began to, I wrote them a bunch of other stories of different classroom projects and kids. And, and eventually that became starting from scratch. One thing I appreciate about the book is that you sort of acknowledge that a lot of these work, the work that's captured in the book, these anecdotes are the product of 20 plus years of teaching. And in fact, you dedicate the book to all of the teachers whose ideas you've stolen over the years. And so I'm curious, who's had the greatest influence on your teaching? Yeah. I think the the teacher that um, most influenced me, and I was only with him for a short time, was uh, a, a writer, a professor called Neil Postman, who wrote a number of great books on, on education and, and cultural philosophy. He, um, he wrote a book in the 60s called Teaching as a Subversive Activity, and that was, of course, very attractive to us at the time. And then he wrote another book in the 70s called teaching as a conserving activity. Um, and, 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 and just the, the contrast of those two um, titles um, was a really important lesson for me in, um, in the role of education in our society. He, um, he, he likened it to that of a thermostat. And, and he said um, that that's the role education should play in society when we are so shaped by the values and, and just uh, the schema of society that just is a strong current that we're not even aware that we're in, how much it shapes, you know, what we think is, is right and true and just and beautiful, um, much more than I think we'd care to admit. And, and it's the role of education to kind of help to see what those trends are in society and to kind of go in the other direction to balance them. So if, if, if society, everything is too much about individuals and our individuals, you know, lift your boots up by your, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and individual um, Horatio Alger hero stories, um, then, then education should be all about collaboration and the role of working together. And if it's too much about just, oh, collaborating, working, then it should move toward you have rights and responsibilities as an individual. So, um, so I love that idea, just the way the thermostat, if it gets too hot, it sort of turns on the cool air. If it gets too cool, it turns on the warm air. And, um, and it sort of connects to another teacher who I had um, at the Waldorf Institute who exemplified this beautifully for me. And uh, his name was John Gardner. And John... Um, was the was the headmaster of the Waldorf School in, in Garden City, Long Island, and and during the fifties, um, when everything was rah rah America, Eisenhower is our president, uh, flags flying on every building, 
McCarthy looking for the enemy communists under every uh, every table. Um, um, Nationalism just to the to the to the max. And that whole decade, he didn't have his kids say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and and the school was considered godless and communist. And then in the '60s, when we were totally disrespecting our leaders burning our flag, stomping on our country. Um, every morning his kids were up, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Um, so, and, and he taught me some, um, he, he, he just taught me more than anything about that behind everything that you see, there's an idea. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a heart and a core from which it came. A lot of times I feel as I'm working with teachers designing curriculum that um, we often miss that sort of big idea that, that is behind the manifestation of the little events and things that we see and study. So I think he, he taught me this sort of looking always for the center of it, for the big idea that, that uh, sort of gave meaning and held together all the disparate events and uh, people and uh, places that we tend to focus on in our studies. I also think you've sort of captured a lot of the experiences of being a teacher. And so in, in one part of the book, you write that on Sunday nights, your heart was beating with anxiety rather than enthusiasm as you were sort mm. of thinking about the week ahead. And I thought, well, that, that reminds me of me when I was teaching, even after I had yeah. been doing it a few years. And I know that's how teachers feel. Uh, why do you think we're in this constant state of anxiety? Yeah, good question. Well, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but I know for me uh, and many teachers that I've worked with, we we sort of carry an anxiousness, um, almost a guilt that comes from the gap of outwardly trying to look like we know what we're doing, (laughs) meeting all the kids' needs. But inwardly, we sort of know how far we are from succeeding. We're barely hanging on to some of them that are struggling at one end. We're, we're throwing an occasional challenge out to ones at the other end. But, um, but we know we're really not meeting all their needs. And, and that just builds um, sort of this, this cloud that I'm just not very good at this. I'm just not really doing my job. And, and on top of that now, with, um, which is much different, I think, in these times than when I was teaching is the sort of high stakes and uh, of accountability, and 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 add that into that whole pressure, um, and and I think that causes us uh, causes many teachers in the classroom to to feel um, the anxiousness about that, um, and also because they they want to. I mean, what brought them into the profession was um, was they they just wanted the most for all parts of all their children. And um, and they, they, they long, I think we all long to really teach to the whole child. We long to engage them spiritually and emotionally and socially and individually um, to be engaged. And, and, and those things all matter to us. But, but again, in the sort of pressures of this educational climate, the, the narrow focus on just intellectual and cognitive development as measured by tests, again, it creates this sort of anxiety. That's not really what, what attracted me to want to be a teacher. That's, that's not what excited me to come into the profession. It, it's part of it, but it sort of begins to colonize the rest of uh, all the important parts of being a human being. 
when the focus is so narrowly on what can be measured on a, on a test and tends to be generally cognitive skills. I think those things are part of what contributes to that anxiety. I'm curious what you think makes a good teacher. Like what qualities a person should already have and which qualities uh, they should be seeking to develop during their career? Yeah. A big question. I don't know. I, I, I taught college for uh, college classes at Simmons College and Wheelock College here for a couple of years. And, and, and I ended up not liking it very much, uh, partly because I was not very effective, but, but also um, I, I, it made me realize that in my fourth grade class, I believed absolutely in every kid that they could become anything they wanted to be. And, and whether to what degree that was true is probably um, very out of proportion with their, their gifts and talents, but they needed somebody to believe in them um, in order to become all that they could be. And, 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 and I'd see with some of these college kids that, that I just didn't believe in them. I was thinking, I hope you don't become a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just was hard to bear that, and I wasn't I wasn't good enough at at counseling them sort of out of the profession <laughs> before they'd even begun, and too much time would go by, and then they paid all this money, and in the end, I had to sign off that okay, this person's ready to be in the classroom, and it, it just was uh, talk about anxiety. But as I look back on it, the one thing those teachers that that drove me crazy that I uh, that I just did not believe or I did not want to be a teacher were ones who seemed to have the inability to reflect on their practice. They'd be teachers who I'd watch do a, do a lesson, and it would be a terrible lesson, and kids would be all over the place. And I would ask them afterwards, "So how did it go?" And they'd say, "I think it was great." Oh. Um, well, is there anything you might think about doing differently next time? No, I, it was it was it was just perfect. And and it was those teachers who weren't able to reflect on their practice and learn from it that were the ones that um, were just poor examples of what it means to be a learner. So they could never be a teacher. So, so I think maybe one of the first qualities is the ability to be reflective, to be able to look back at what you've done, to have some sense of uh, I can get better. That sort of growth mindset we talk about with kids uh, that teachers need to, to model and definitely have for their own. Um, and then another thing I think that they really need is um, they, they have to have had to experience learning in the way we hope they're going to turn around and, and help kids have that experience. I think many of us went to very traditional uh, programs. We don't have in our experience what it's like to learn through inquiry discovery or projects, and, and so, so we tend to fall back on just the things that we know and the way that we were taught. Um, so, so I think uh, another quality, I don't know if this is a quality as much as a training, but it, it has to be, um, it has to, the, the teaching has to be sort of brewed out of, uh, of one's own experience as a learner. So that has to be rich. I, I agree with that. Um, and, and all the more reason for school leaders to design their professional development for their staffs the way they, they hope that uh, classrooms will look. Um, because I think when people are under stress in their classrooms, that their default position is to become the teachers that they had as children 
rather than the ones they aspire to be or have read about in their college textbooks. I've seen exactly the same thing. It's very true. And I think one other thing is um, I, I do a workshop with schools. I call it You Are What You Teach. And, um, and it's very difficult to have authority with kids around things that you aren't actually living in your own life. So if your school has character values or character traits that, that you want kids to, to hold kids accountable to, um, you need to be deeply practicing those yourself. Um, if you want kids to have wonder and engagement, you have to live in the world in, such, in the same way. If you want kids to feel an ethic of service to their community, um, that starts with where are you <laughs> in terms of your ethic of service. Um, and so, so the, the kind of inner work, I think, that accompanies the outward learning of our craft are, are equally important in becoming an effective teacher. That actually reminds me of a, a tension that I focused in on later in your book, because you acknowledge that teachers need to possess expertise to plan high-quality lessons or projects, but they shouldn't know all of the ins and outs or, of their subject matter because it's also important for them to model curiosity or wonder right. for students. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that tension. Yeah, I love that question. Um, and it is a real tension. I felt it all the time because there was something in me that just always wanted to do something different every year. And, and a lot of years I did. Um, but then there were also things that I really wanted to craft and develop and go deeper with. And it's difficult to sustain inventing new things to do every year and the pressures that even come from, oh, I did this last year. Oh, how am I going to top that next year? What am I going to do? Um, so, so here's how I, one way at least that I kind of worked with that tension. I, I tried each year to, to do one long, and we call them expeditions, um, that, that was one that I did probably 15 times. Um, so I did it every year. It was, it was, it sort of grew out of the growing wheat project. And um, and so I'd always do that. And then I would try to do something maybe in the spring that just had never been done. So that would be an opportunity for me to, to be learning along with kids and, um, and, and having to find experts to help us for things that I didn't know and read together in order to learn. So, so that was one way, one, one project that, that I just kept refining and deepening and connecting more to standards and real learning. Um, and one that was sort of new and adventurous and pioneering. So I wanted my kids to have both of those experiences. But the constant in both of those uh, types of projects, the, the one I've done over and over again or the new one, is that I have to be really knowledgeable and clear about what my standards are. And, and I don't care if those standards come from Common Core or from the state or from my district or my school or my own ethic, but, but I have to be really clear about those. Because um, ultimately, these projects are just uh, sort of tempting and engaging um, soups of all the different ingredients that kids need to digest. Um, so so um, they need to learn all these things, and, and you could teach them in a number of ways, but ideally the project becomes the context through which kids or in which kids learn the content and skills that they need to master. Um, so, 
So if I'm clear about those content and skills, and I know we have to do uh, work on this in narrative writing, and I know we have to get to simple machines and, and rocks and minerals and, 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 uh, and, and geography, westward expansion, and I know we have to do colonial life, and I know we have to do ancient, whatever those standards are, those I have to be really clear about. Um, because then I can be a little bit more loose as I explore with my kids something that uh, sort of like bicycles. We did a, a year project studying this bike path and its effect on our town. And, and I didn't know anything about bikes or about bicycles or fixing bicycles. But, um, but I knew about simple machines and I knew about colonial life and I knew about reading and math. So I feel like the project in that way becomes almost like this river that carries us through the the, the, uh, the different uh, cities or, or disciplines that we need to attend to on the course of our journey. And so we'll follow the river, the bicycle along until we get to taking a look at how the gears work, which may open the door to the world of simple machines. And I may get off the river and go onto the port of simple machines and live there for three weeks and do all of my simple machine experiments and, and that's the thing that, that I would develop over time. So I had all my simple machine stuff down, good experiments, good rich activities and inquiries and readings and experiments. And, and I had the same in my colonial life um, sort of studies and the same in, um, in uh, uh, rocks and minerals. And, and so once I would get to the port, then I wasn't inventing uh, something new every day. I sort of had a, a rich, uh, over time, became rich um, series of activities and lessons and assessments that would be right at the heart of the content of those disciplines. So even though I didn't know anything about bicycles, um, and that's where we really needed to have experts, we needed to learn uh, the physics of the bicycle, we had to have people come in and teach us lots of things. I didn't know anything about repairing them or fixing them up, which we ended up fixing up bikes and giving them to kids that didn't have bikes. So, so many aspects of that I didn't know anything about. But as the bicycle led me to these sort of ports of my standards, uh, that's what I really knew about. And, and that allowed me to have a flexibility um, and curiosity and inquiry at the same time as I'm getting to the deep um, standards that the kids needed to learn. I think that some people might say that teaching is an art and while others say it's, it's more like a science. And I was wondering if you had an opinion about that uh, as well as whether or not you think that distinction is meaningful. Hmm. Well, um, of course it's both, <laughs> um, but, but it is an interesting distinction. Um, I like how Carol Ann Tomlinson framed it. She, she said, well, it's an art, and it's also a craft. And um, the art is very difficult to teach. It, it, it seems like that's something people come to it with. Now, the craft you can teach, and that she felt that all teachers can become better in their craft. And as we learn new instructional practices and new uh, um, you know, ways of designing, designing curriculum and new assessments, that, that we can develop the craft of teaching. I guess that's what it would be on the science side. Um, and, uh, but the art is more challenging. The, the art is, is um, you know, once people have learned the scales and mastered the notes, then uh, how do you teach improvisation? Um, and somewhere in there, 
somewhere in the art is this deep attentiveness to who your children are and your ability to respond in ways that are creative and um, in a sense that meet children where they're at. And, and you only know that by really understanding them. And, and there's so, so I like how she said it. There's an art of it that's tricky about teaching and there's a craft that you can get better. Or um, I work with a principal of a school in Maine called Mike McCarthy, and, and he said it a different way. He said, um, well, I just think a third of the teachers are born teachers. A third of them I think you can probably make teachers, and a third of them shouldn't have been born. <laughs> that was Mike. <laughs> Do you feel like uh, in our professional development that it might be more worthwhile to spend less time talking about craft and more time talking about art? Could those conversations be productive? Another great question. Um, I don't think the art is about talking. Mm -hmm. I think that is so much in the living is where you learn that. Um, I think there's probably models that would be helpful and useful to explore, but, but in the end, whatever great ideas you have, whatever great practices you learn, you, you take them from the workshop into your classroom and it just never works. Mm -hmm. um, your kids are different. Your setting is different. Um, you didn't quite get all 10 of the important parts and the one you left out was lethal and the, and the lesson fell apart. So I think so much of the art of it is in the practice um, and maybe connected to what we were talking about before, if the teacher has reflection, if they have a growth mindset, if they have resources that they can turn to and colleagues that they can explore with, and they live in a culture in a school that is uh, dedicated to supporting teachers and growing, then, um, then I think they'll grow as artists. But I don't, I don't think that's as much talking as it is doing. So in your roles as a teacher, as a, a coach for teachers, how do you strike the balance between playing to someone's strengths and pushing them to address their weaknesses? Hmm. Well, I, I think there's a general rule um, in giving feedback to teachers that, um, and this may be extreme, but it probably is, but sort of a 10 to 1 rule that, that you have to notice positive things for every one suggestion you make in order to help somebody get better. Uh, but then a deep focusing, or anyway, so that, that creates a sort of safety of being able to hear critical feedback because somebody has recognized, uh, you know, what I've done well. And I think that's essential. It's one of the, one of the, the, the uh, key rules of critique that we do in our classrooms with kids is that whenever anybody's work is up, always we're going to first say positive things about it and what we like about it and what we notice. And, and, and then we might say suggestions of here's some things to think about, or if it were my work, I might, um, that would give the author ideas if they wanted to choose them to, to, um, to revise. So I think that's the same with adults. I, I, I think uh, when I observe teachers, I will always try to find um, and name those things I see them doing well. And then once we've named maybe, or uh, I might see, a hundred more challenging <laughs> aspects of their teaching that need work on, but I might just pick, um, you know, one or two real priorities. And, and then I think if I've named those um, and then provide support, 
for them to get better at that, and and they themselves sort of take on that, that I want to get better at that. And I think there's possibilities of growing. I think in EL we used to always use this this sort of nice triad of engage, support, and hold accountable. And I think that's true that that if a teacher is not really engaged themselves in developing some new practice or, or finding something that they're doing, if they don't get the support then, the professional development, whatever it takes to help give them the tools they need to develop it, and then uh, if they're not held accountable in some way, that doesn't have to mean uh, their evaluation. It could be, I think, the most powerful accountability is with your peers, that um, if you've been in a group, uh, maybe a professional learning community group or a study group of some kind, and or even in the whole faculty, we've all said we're going to work on uh, giving effective feedback. Um, and you feel that sort of pressure from your peers that they're all counting on you to bring to the next meeting, here's what I've done and here's what I've learned about it. So that's the, the uh, sort of accountability part. Um, and I think making progress in a small thing is, is much more powerful than trying to take three big things and then feeling frustrated because you're not really getting much better at it. You just can't be, get better at too many things um, in, in a year. You just have so much on your mind and plate as a teacher, the extra space to really develop something. I, I found much more success with let's take one thing and let's really experience what it likes to get what it's like to get better at something than again to take uh, three things and, and not make any progress. That, I think that happens on a school level as well. I, I um, yeah, I worked with a school in, in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts. It was uh, one of the four worst schools in the state um, by all measures of uh, expulsions and, and police on every floor. And, um, the days uh, EL people went to visit, there was a knife fight. And it was just a, a middle school, horrible, horrible culture, toxic in every dimension. And teachers had pretty much given up um, that they, they could make any change. And, um, and they went, about 15 of them went together to, uh, to an EL uh, institute. And, and at a school that had kids like their kids that was performing very well, so they could kind of see it's possible for kids to do it. And they got re-energized to want to try to do something. And, and so after hours of, um, you know, where should we start? What should we do to really try to turn around the culture? And of all the things they pick, well, we're going to have our kids tuck in their shirts. And um, so they went back and, and, you know, with all the problems they're facing, it felt like that's pretty minuscule in terms of uh, right. what we need to But in fact, in three weeks' time, the teachers were shocked that kids had their shirts tucked in. Uh, the first thing that had to happen was teachers had to tuck in their shirts. And, and it wasn't that that's a big deal, tucking it, but it was one of the rules that just wasn't followed and sort of gave this impression, we have rules, but you don't have to follow them. And it turns out this was like the one thing that of all the initiatives that they had taken on, it would always be the case that, you know, some teachers would actually do it and some wouldn't. And that gives the message to kids that this doesn't really matter. And, and, and even if you have 17 teachers enforce something, and then one teacher just lets it go. Oh, that's it. Well, that, that, kids, it doesn't matter here. 
So this, I think, was the first time that, like, every teacher enforced it. They were out in the halls. They called kids out when they saw it. And, and so in the end, kids tucked in their shirts. And, and, of course, that's no big deal, but it is a big deal in that the teachers felt like, wow, if we really all do something and everybody does it and, and we're aligned in our mission and, and we, that we do have efficacy, we do have power to change things. And that translated into, well, you know, let's take that to another level. But until the teachers felt like, yes, we can affect some change, then um, if we all do it, and that was the key. And um, so, so I, think, I think the same with an individual teacher. Let me take some small thing and really practice it and have the feeling of getting better at it. Well, it, rem- <laughs> it reminds me of the question about teachers' anxiety. Right, so we have these these high expectations for what teachers are able to do to cater to the the whole child for twenty five or thirty people at a time, but as as human beings, we, we only have the capacity to change one or two small things at a time, and so yeah. you know we have to deal with that disconnect every day. Uh, I think it creates a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's true. Good point. We we've talked about what I think are a lot of timeless ideas. And so I'm interested to know a little bit more about what you think has changed. So if you were to try and recreate one of these projects featured in the book, uh, what do you think you might have to do differently today? Well, I've thought a lot about that, actually, um, and wondered at times, yeah, I wonder if, uh, if, if it's even relevant, the kind of projects I did in, in those days. Um, the, Early mid '90s were a time when standards were just coming into sort of high stakes um, accountability. So I, I, I tasted that toward the end of, the, of, of my work in the classroom. But um, uh, so, and, and to tell you the truth, I, I I didn't push. I mean, I I would work with all these schools, but I don't think most of them knew that I wrote a book. Because <laughs> I, 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 I really did question: Is is this sort of setting people up for with some unrealistic expectations that it's just so easy to say, well, you could do that back then, but we can't do that now in this educational climate. It just felt like, but I always felt like I need to write another book, that, that, or at least, so here's how I would approach those things if I were in the classroom today. And, and two main things stand out as to what would have to be different. Um, first, I think I was very naive uh, about assessment. And particularly around the assessment of every individual kid on every individual skill, I think I had a, a tremendous sense, and, and, and there was no question that kids were learning tremendous things. And, and I was able, you know, I knew who needed extra help in reading or math, and um, and would try to provide that. But 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 the kind of attention to to really pinpointing where kids' challenges are in learning, particularly reading and math. Um, and and then and being able to meet them right at the next level of where they're at, um, I think was one thing that, that that I would have to be much more attentive to. I think I'd also have to be much more planful. Um, my projects, um, I had a I had a good um, sort of outline. I kind of what I had to be able to see was how am I going to get from the bike path to Colonial Life, Simple Machines, Rocks and Minerals, uh, you know, my, my big units of, of science and social studies, because I figured with everything I could incorporate reading and, and, and some math. But attention to, to um, 
to the um, individual skills that kids were mastering and the process of that um, uh, was was not, I wasn't nearly as rigorous about that as I would need to be. And, and planful, yeah, I wanted to say, um, so, so again, I knew um, the areas that we had to get to, um, but, but I could be a little bit loose about how we were going to get there. I could be um, a little bit uh, more spontaneous in terms of following where kids' interests went. And if I saw it, could I thought we were going to write this persuasive essay about this topic, but I see kids are so passionate about what courtesy means that we're going to do the same, of course, learn the same skills, but I'm going to follow where their lead is. Um, so... Um, and there still needs to be room for that spontaneity in a project, and, and knowing my standards well allows that to happen. But I think at the time, um, I was less um, beholden to making sure we got to all the different standards that we had to teach. Um, so assessment, I think I would have to pay more attention to. Planning, I think I have to be a little bit more careful. And, and the third would be particularly around reading. Because um, although I thought, you know, in general, there's always something to read about uh, any topic that we would take, finding the right text, again, at the right level for my students, and not just a text, but then a sort of successively deepening and complexity of text that really helped to develop uh, in a more systematic way their, their close reading skills was... Um, is another thing I would have to pay much more attention to if I were to take on those projects today. So if readers could have just one takeaway from your book, what would you hope it would be? I think one, one common um, reaction I get to workshops that I do that surprises me uh, each time is, is people who are teachers who will say in some way or another, basically they're saying this. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to remember any of the ideas you talked about. I'm not sure I'm going to do any of the kinds of projects that you modeled for us. I, I don't know if I'm going to do any of those particular instructional practices. But what I'm reminded of when I'm with you is... Um, what it means to be passionate about something. That's what I want more than anything is to be passionate about what I do as much as I saw your passion come through in the way that you, you interacted with kids and the way that you interacted with the curriculum and designed these adventures for kids to go on. That's what I want more than anything is, is to have that passion because I don't really feel like I have that anymore. I think that is one of the things that sort of gets driven out as we get more and more bean counting and uh, test taking that sort of a, uh, the passion of what attracted us to the profession it gets lost, and 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 so, um, so so that's one thing. I just want, and then the other thing is that I'm not having enough fun. Teaching is just so heavy; um, it's such a burden. And yes, you know, there's lots of rewards as we make progress, but it just day after day is a grind, and I forget that these are kids, and 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 we need to make it. Um, enticing and more fun. There needs to be more joy. Yeah, we're doing okay on the rigor side, but, um, but I've forgotten about joy. So if through reading about some of those projects and reading about some of those kids, it awakens um, just, I want to be passionate. And, and I, 
I got to dive more deeply into what I care about and then throw my whole life behind it. And if they say, I, um, it just, it shouldn't be a burden. I just need to sort of find a way to rekindle and bring joy back into the learning, then I would be happy. In fact, I'd be joyful and passionate. Well, Stephen, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple of more questions. Uh, my first one is, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed our conversation and they enjoy starting from scratch? Yeah, I could say some of the authors that I've really appreciated. So, so one would be any of the EL publications that uh, have come out over the last few years. Two... Um, I love anything that Carol Ann Tomlinson writes. Carol Ann is the sort of master of, of differentiation, um, and yet so deeply at the heart of her work is the uh, appreciation of, of, of the spirit of every child, and, and, and she has, again, this lovely, I think, uh, integration of the practical ways of organizing classrooms that honor that individuality and that spirit and soul of each child in, in ways that are, are deep and meaningful. The other things that I, that I love to read um, are, are books by, um, you know, by, uh, not by teachers as much as by scientists or by um, historians that, that help me to appreciate my subject um, at a much deeper level and at, at a much more complex understanding because I think the, the better I understand the content of what I'm teaching and the broader my, my um, knowledge is and, and, um, and, and not just knowledge but wonder is for how amazing this part of the world or whatever it is that I have to teach these kids. Um, I love reading books um, have any immediate titles, but the general genre of of people who uncover the sort of mysteries of trees, of, of the, the history of simple machines, developments of inventions or technologies, just things that, that, that help me to appreciate my content are really important for helping me to be better a better teacher of them. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about um, your current work? and how our listeners can learn more about it. So um, I actually left, uh, left working for EL Education in September of this year, um, and um, mainly because I, I think I'm sort of the end, this is going to be the last chapter in my teaching career, and uh, EL was doing fine without me, and amazing set of people and resources to carry that work forward. Um, but uh, So I'm an independent consultant now. I'm working with schools um, that I've had some connection with, um, a lot around project-based learning, um, a lot around um, uh, engaging students as leaders of their own learning. Um, I, I've done a lot of work recently in, with primary teachers. So, so K to two, um, particularly kindergarten, uh, fascinates me because they seem to suffer the most collateral damage of the pressures of the, the sort of cognitive 
rigor of uh, common core demands. So I see in many, many kindergartens, kids spending less time playing, less time moving, less time telling stories, less time with creativity and imagination, less time in nature, and more time sitting still and doing things that uh, are, are entirely unsuited to where they are in their development. I think so many of the problems kids face as they get older um, are, are just that they never had the right opportunity in, in kindergarten and in the early years to develop a sort of love of learning and curiosity and adventure and exploring. Um, and, and, and if you push the cognitive rigor part too soon before they really even have developed a full um, sort of sensory integration, then I think uh, there tend to be a lot of problems. So, so a lot of my work has been in primary classrooms trying to um, feel like I'm the guardian of play and story and, and movement and uh, imagination in, um, in our youngest classrooms. It is, um, there's been a, a real interest in a network of Christian schools that have been um, really interested in a um, just a new vision of what a school that sort of was based on seeing children as made in the image of God would look like. And how would how would that translate into not just, say, having chapel at the beginning of the day or diagramming verses from the Bible instead of from the English manual, but really how would it how would it influence the, the, the curriculum that we taught and the way that we taught it and what it is that we assessed and the cultures that we built in our classrooms? So they, you know, what would it mean to have a curriculum that honored, say, who children were, are in the image of God, that um, they're justice seekers, beauty makers, and creators, and um, idolatry discerners, and neighbor lovers, what would, what, what, how would that influence the way we taught and what we taught? So there's a network of schools, particularly in Canada, who, who have done much more deep thinking about this than schools I've seen in America. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of work with some of these Christian schools who, who are looking to, to really develop a new vision of what tends to be a fairly traditional model um, that um, would look more like... Uh, a school that the Holy Spirit could live in. <laughs> anyway, so, so I've been excited to work with uh, with that network of schools. That sounds like an exciting new endeavor, and so uh, we we wish you luck with that. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. Really a pleasure. Thank you for your deep and probing and wonderful questions. They helped me to reflect and think about some things that um, I hadn't thought about in a while. So I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> 